Welcome to Saucer Cinema, the podcast about UFOs, aliens, and otherworldly phenomena in film, TV, and other media. I'm your host, Alex. On this week's episode, I talk to Andre Kello, professor of film and digital media arts at the University of New Mexico Valencia campus. We talk about 1982's Liquid Sky, directed by Slava Zuckerman. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Today I have Andre Kello here. We're going to be talking about Liquid Sky from 1982, directed by Slava Sukerman. Andre is the... Uh, I'm a professor in the uh, Film and Di- Digital Media Arts Department at uh, University of New Mexico, Valencia campus. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, uh, me and Andre go back a while. Uh, uh, and uh, this is a movie I believe you have a long uh appreciation for am i correct i saw it for the first time on a video cassette i got the video cassette at um it was a place that was a video rental store that was in simpsonville called um it was called video update but i think before that it was called movies oh yeah yeah i remember i remember movies that was a that was like a rental chain that was uh around for a while right it was a cow themed video rental chain and they had a deal where the movies that were against the wall on the shelves that were against the wall were the new releases but any everything else in the store was their like archive their library yeah that stuff you could get uh 12 of them for six dollars for a week oh wow yeah and so in that way i you know i went through everything that they had in the store one of those things was this weird movie which uh it wasn't the first time i'd heard of it there was this book here. I want to get the name of the book, right? The encyclopedia of monsters by Daniel Cohen. Oh yeah. 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 Daniel Cohen. Yeah. He was one of those guys who wrote uh, a lot of books for kids about stuff like monsters and, uh, paranormal stuff or ghost stories or all kinds of stuff like and movie and movie monsters things like that movie monsters yeah and so there was this encyclopedia and it had all from like classic uh shitty 1950s like drive-in movies right that was most of it that was actually where i learned about what um acromegaly was oh okay because they one of the monsters was a just a person who suffered from this disease <laughs> what uh, what film was that used in oh gosh I, I don't even remember the name of the film um it was a black and white horror movie from the 1950s and i think it starred rondo hatton i think it was um tarantula okay tarantula okay yeah because there's this um doctor the mad scientist and he's doing experiments on, uh, you know, like 
attempting to induce acromegaly in various creatures, and he does it in a in a person, but then also in a giant spider. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and that was how I learned about acromegaly. And so another one of the monsters in this book was the alien from uh, Liquid Sky. Wow. Like, was that like the only 80s movie in there or something? The book was published in the 80s. Okay. I think maybe The Fly. I think maybe they had an entry for the original The Fly and for the remake. But uh, I, I know I read the whole thing cover to cover, and it mostly focused on these, like, um, you know, matinee, uh, them... Or, or is it not them? Like, they. The one about the giant ants? Them. Them. Was it them? Yeah, yeah. They is, is a little awkward, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, th- no, them is actually a favorite of my uh, my uh, dad. I used to watch that with him a lot, actually, as a kid. But, uh, yeah, the, 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 like, 50s drive-in type thing. You know, the types of things you'd see at Mystery Science Theater or stuff like that. That's exactly right. And I think that might have yeah. even been why I was interested in the book was because my introduction to that stuff was through Mystery Science Theater. Yeah, I think a lot of people's was. <laughs> you know, you might find somebody who's like, like one of my students who's, you mm-hmm. know, made, made like 20, 21, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, they, they've never seen Kramer versus Kramer, right? They've mm-hmm. never seen broadcast news, but they've seen, uh, you know, Manos, the Hands of Fate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Thanks to Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> this movie, Liquid Sky, I get major MST3K vibes from this movie. And it is, I wouldn't call it a bad film, mostly because, well, I mean, it's a complicated question, right? What is a bad mm-hmm. film? Uh, there's a woman uh, who wrote a book and that was published uh, last year. One, I, I I downloaded it, a PDF of it, and it's uh here it is bad film, in uh incompetence, intention, and failure, by Becky Bartlett. Okay. And she's a professor of cinema studies, I think she's in Glasgow, Edinburgh University. It's Edinburgh or Edinburgh University Press. I think oh, she okay. might actually be a professor at Glasgow, but um. Yeah, University of Glasgow. There it is. So, and her thing is that bad film, which she, you know, describes in, with, a, with a new word that's a combination of the two words. It's bad film with no space in between. Oh, a bad film. <laughs> right, and, and it's for her, it's like a genre. Yeah. Right, it's not about making a value judgment. The word bad there doesn't do that. Right. It describes a kind of movie. And... Not only that, a kind of movie that might actually be very good in that it might be enjoyable, it might be historically significant, it might be unique in a way that is instructive, it, or it might even simply be like people thought it was bad at the time, but actually it's great and people like it now. Yeah. And there are elements of that that I think are in Liquid Sky. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, definitely like not the most polished film, but... Uh, Which is weird, because Yuri Naiman, the cinematographer, you know, an incredibly accomplished cinematographer who has, you know, he was the DP on some pretty significant films, and a member of the American um, Society of Cinematographers, ASC, you know, he's a great cinematographer, a legitimately great cinematographer, and there are images in this film that you cannot see. 
Yeah. <laughs> I think it really just comes down to the budget. Uh, from what I understand, it costs like <clears throat> half a million to make, which in today's money is like a, a million and a half, which is still nothing. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, this is the guy who did the, the remake of the movie DOA in 1988. Did you ever see that? I have not seen it, no. It's a very cool um, film noir premise about a guy who discovers that he's been poisoned and he knows he only has 24 hours left to live, so he's going to use those 24 hours to find his killer. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I believe I've heard of the original. I didn't uh, I didn't know there was a remake. There was, um, with uh, Dennis Quaid. Oh, okay. And I don't know, but that might have been where they met and then, you know, fell in love and ended up having children, including Jack Quaid, you know, who is... Oh, yeah, yeah. ...on The Boys and on uh, Lower Decks. Yeah, the Quaid dynasty. <laughs> uh, and uh, the director uh, was uh, pretty well-known in Russia and Israel, I believe. Yeah, he was a, a documentary filmmaker. He made small projects. Um, you know, you really get a sense from watching the movie that what he was was a person who was just like part of the world of uh, performance art and, you know, drug yeah. weirdos in New York City in the early 80s. Yeah, yeah. From what I gather, a lot of the actors were taken from like a acting circle or acting class or something. Speaking like of which, one. the absolute worst performance in the film is the guy who is supposed to be the acting coach. <laughs> is that the is that the professor guy? The guy who's like we we see the German guy and he's like giving yeah. his presentation. He's like these aliens, they yes. you know, they he's a brain yeah, they, they have the orgasm, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the guy with the mustache is like, well, what do you want me to do with it? I'm an acting coach. <laughs> well, you know, those who can't do, teach, as they say, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. no no offense. That's not no offense. No offense. And no those offense. who can't teach, teach acting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this guy was... I mean, he was legitimately in a film with a lot of bad performances. Not that everybody was bad in it, but no, there were some real, like, amateurish, sort of yeah. distractingly, like, can we not get one more take of that? He was by far the worst one, and he was the acting teacher. The energy of that set must have been very interesting, you know, being, I mean, because, like, a lot of it was apparently done very on the, you know, very guerrilla style, on the fly at a lot of places. Oh, you can tell. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's very, very evident. But it still remains a very visually striking movie, and uh, it's like... Absolutely. Yeah. And the I set mean, design, I'm... the costumes, even a lot of the photography. You know, when they actually, when you are able to see the actors, they look beautiful. Yeah, well, I will say the version I watched, uh, or the, not really a different version, but, you know, Restoration on a blu-ray called off-road by vinegar syndrome yeah I, um, I watched that one too the version that i saw when i was in high school was a transfer that looked so terrible that it was often difficult to tell what was going on yeah yeah and the version that you can get on the blu-ray from vinegar syndrome is gorgeous yeah, it's very clear. God, it's beautiful. Even the poorly lit stuff. There's so much more dynamic range that you're seeing into the shadows, and it just looks, like, moody. Yeah. It's like, uh, it, it is. It's really kind of really impressive. Like, I, I've I, ne I never watched it before that, before I got the Blu-ray, because I just picked it up kind of, like, out of curiosity, because 
it's a cult. It is one of the like all-time cult movies. I mean, it really is one of those classic midnight movies. I have a framed poster of it up on my wall right now. Uh, my wife, she got it for me for my birthday a few years ago. And I had to wait because, you know, we were living in this tiny little apartment in Chicago. There was nowhere to put it. But now we're out here in Taos, New Mexico, and I've got wall space. So I, I, I yeah. finally hung up my Liquid Sky poster, and it looks amazing. Sweet. Yeah, I mean, the aesthetic of this movie, just like, it's just, it's, any kind of amateurishness is kind of just like, it's just kind of almost besides the point, because like, the movie really remains in your memory after you've seen it. Like, it's just really, really cool looking. Just, I, I kind of get the impression that, yeah. that it's like at least in, in a certain way, c connected to the, like, transgressive filmmakers that were living in, and working in New York City. Yeah. You know, people like um, Nick Zed, who just recently died, Richard Kern, you know? Right. Like, the people... There were people in this community who became, like, the first people to make music videos. And, you know, they definitely had a way of working, which was to, you know, to spend no dollars and to just, you know, take advantage of the fact that they individually each knew, like, 60 of the greatest artists who ever lived. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, that, that's very much a New York thing, I guess. Venge living in New York and having, you know, being in the center of everything. So you have, like, this these little pockets of talent. Specifically, I mean, it's like this time where there were these performance artists. Yes. Photographers and stuff. And it was 1982, and they hadn't started really dying from AIDS in large numbers yet. Right. HIV hadn't been identified as the cause of AIDS, not until yeah. 1984. So at this point, you know, there's just a kind of general sense that people are dying too much. And they don't really yeah. know what's causing it. And, and I mean, you, you can definitely see the film as like an AIDS movie, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's unavoidable. Like, there's like this whole obsession with sex and death. And uh, also just, like, this feeling of anxiety and, like, anhedonia kind of feeling where it's, like, just, like, this lack of enjoyment of anything. Everything's just kind of, uh, I don't know. It's just a very, uh, it's very bleak <laughs> in a lot of ways. It's very, it's very abrasive. Uh, kind of like a lot of the music that uh, probably inspired the fashion and everything. You know, like that late 70s no wave stuff and a lot of that post-punk stuff. I wonder how yeah. much of that is, you know, an actual, like, you know, like you say, anhedonia, like this thing, like a chemical thing where they're, you know, they've done so much junk that they, yeah. their brain doesn't work right anymore and they can't smile about anything. I mean, is it that? Or, like, at the end of the film, Anne Carlyle's character, one of her characters, the Margaret, she, yeah. she says, I was as uh, androgynous as David Bowie himself. So they're not ripping off David Bowie. They're explicitly telling a story about people who are David Bowie fans. And so, like, how much of it is an attempt to, uh, you know, just recreate that affect that Bowie expressed in films like The Man Who Fell to Earth? Because, like, Man Who Fell to Earth and this film, I think, have a lot in common. Yeah. I think they're both in a about this thing where it's like that punk or like no wave or whatever like this new wave thing that these people are part of yeah. it makes them feel like space aliens and so they're attempting to uh literalize that 
Right, right, yeah. I was thinking about that, like looking at like looking at, like the way the, the way the way everybody looks, and they you know they, they're already kind of like aliens before the aliens even kind of arrive. Do you remember <laughs> in the movie um, Heavy Metal Parking Lot where there's the part where the the kid, this young kid who's at the the Judas Priest concert, he's like. Man, that punk shit, it doesn't belong on the planet Earth, man. It belongs on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. I mean, yeah. And uh, the band Mars, you know? There you go, you know? <laughs> it's like people in general at the time were like trying to like change what the idea of what an alien was from right. this sort of like big rubber head, you know, carrying a ray gun. And right. to transform it into just like, you know, what would eventually become like mall punks. The vibe of this a little bit reminds me of, um, there was this other movie. It was, uh, I think I talked about this on a previous episode with uh, another guest, but uh, this movie, this, un- this famously unmade science fiction movie in the early 80s called uh, The Tourist. Have you ever heard of this? I don't think I have. Yeah. Well, it was one of those kind of famous unmade films and it was about like, uh, um, it was basically. I mean, honestly, it was kind of like the, the the plot of Men in Black a little bit. Like Earth is kind of like this place where all these aliens are stranded. I don't know how to describe it. It is really one of the most unique kind of like attempts at doing like an alien story, and it was definitely like picked apart for a lot of ideas over the years. But like the at the the whole f- the vibe of it, the the affect of it, the whole feeling of it was very. I feel like. Uh, it would have been more like a bigger budget version of like the kind of thing this thing is mining a little bit. This kind of like early eighties malaise, like anxiety of that. That script also involved like um, uh, people dying from sex and with aliens and things like that. So like uh, um, also cat people at the same time. The Paul Schrader version, even though it's not an alien movie. There's like that's about you know I can't have sex or it's gonna kill me. That was probably in the air at the time. Well, yeah, there were people that were telling that kind of a story, like um, Michael Christopher. He directed Gia, but he was a playwright. Do you know him? Sounds familiar. Well, he wrote a play called The Shadow Box. Okay, yeah, I think I've heard of that. That was in 1977. And that was, you know, I mean, that's like, there's no way anybody knew anything about AIDS. Right. In 1977. But it seems to be, in retrospect, an AIDS play. Yeah, because it's about this these like gay people who are dying from some unknown disease. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, you probably know the guy Michael Christopher because he also is an actor and he was um, he's the bad guy from the TV show Mr. Robot. Okay, he had a way more success as an actor like once he was super old. Like he was in this TV show called Rubicon that was on AMC. Yeah, wasn't that like about code breakers or something? It was some kind of like CIA spook kind of story. Oh, it was a spy thing. Yeah, yeah I remember spy that vaguely. Thing. It was a spy thing. And then okay. after that, he worked constantly for the next decade. He, like, this guy is 77. Mm-hmm. And at age 67, no, I guess like 63, he just suddenly became the actor you had to get for your TV show. But okay. yeah, you know, I think that there were people that were making AIDS stories before people knew what AIDS was because, you know, there was this, I mean, there were people that were dying and nobody knew why. Right. Yeah. I, I think also it was like, 
it was maybe partially like a backlash to the 70s and, and the, the sexual revolution and all that stuff. There was definitely a thing going on in the late 70s where all of a sudden people wanted to be real serious about everything. Yeah. Yeah, they wanted to be like grown-ups. We were like, this is, we're not just going to lay around and smoke weed and, and have a good time. We're going right. to argue like our parents argued. Yeah. Or, or yeah, yeah. And you get the you get like the yeah, especially like the most reactionary version of that was like led into the Reagan stuff, definitely in the uppies and all that for sure. Like a lot of people probably were embarrassed about their counterculture roots or growing up in that time and and I think I mean cuz like a lot of punk or the original wave of punk was definitely kind of a reaction against hippie stuff. So a lot of it was definitely kind of like, even if it wasn't necessarily being more conservative, it was definitely trying to, you know, provoke people's uh, complacency about uh, how things were supposed to be or how the counterculture was supposed to be. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, there was definitely a reaction against the optimism, right? Because the economies were doing poorly, right? There was inflation, but there was also high unemployment and, you know, the and people were paying too much for gasoline and so you know like that sucks now and it sucked back then too and it made people unhappy and you know it's really tough to be like la 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 live for today when you know when the people you know are being evicted and nobody has a job and everybody's on heroin and you know like yeah exactly it's really hard to to say that, you know, in 1977, that hippies were right. Yeah. There's a scene where Margaret's uh, professor, she was having a, an affair with, is killed by the aliens. And then <laughs> her girlfriend comes in and uh, is like, uh, you're dead. Shit. And she repeats these these phrases about how the guy's dead and he's going to turn into shit. And, you know, it's very transgressive, right? It's like, yeah, the kind of thing that... Not necessarily intended to, like, upset people, but rather to make yourself look cool by engaging in upsetting aesthetics. Right, right. But the thing she's... But she goes on a little tangent when she's doing it, comparing herself. Like, I'm not deluding myself. I live in, uh, you know, a city of concrete and glass and everything. I'm not trying to pretend to go back to nature. It was like, it's just very pointedly, she's going after the hippie professor. And then she, you know, fucks his face. (laughs) <laughs> the dead man's face there's an enormous amount of tribbing in this film yes it's a it's a scissor it's a scissor classic <laughs> it's the kind of thing that you you don't really see a lot of in movies nope <laughs> there's a lot of things you, that are in this movie that you don't see every day for sure <laughs> i think one thing that is that stands out is that the film is like there are elements of it that are sort of genderqueer and there are elements yeah. of it that are like b- bisexual or, yeah. or pansexual or whatever. For a film from 1982, that was actually very successful. You know, it made back three times its budget at the box office. People loved this movie. Yeah, it was a huge hit, for, for especially for what it was, yeah. Before the independent films, uh, like movement in the United States of America. Well, before the, yeah. the second one. In 1982, movies were huge business, and people were going to see Indiana Jones and Star Wars and stuff. Right. And the idea of making a feature film for half a million dollars in New York City with a bunch of nobodies 
that was still like a weird, strange, risky move, and it paid off, despite yeah. the fact that, like we were saying before, they did not do a great job. Yeah, definitely not technically. And also, you know, I mean, the movie's too long. There, that part in the middle where you know they're just she there's like a series of rapes and then death oh yeah 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 it goes on for a long and it's all intercut with that scene with the uh the german and the um the androgynous uh rock star's mom yeah <laughs> i was wondering like why 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 are we talking to jimmy's mom here you know it's like uh okay i mean <laughs> i mean we don't really i mean it doesn't really illuminate much about him or or well i mean maybe it does a little bit but yeah it's very it it definitely slows a lot there's definitely a lot of flab on the movie for sure yeah i mean it didn't bore me too much no no no, i I didn't suggest that it was boring it's just that from a narrative standpoint the second act there's not a lot that's moving it forward right once we get to the um the fashion shoot the movie really picks up and starts to go you know and it's very fun and energetic all the way through to the end but the the tempo in the middle is a problem right yeah it's very uh, meandering i mean how many sexual assault scenes are in this like quite a few (laughs) yeah i you know maybe too many i don't know i mean one that seems extraneous it's the scene that takes place after um the rock star and Adrian die at the photo shoot and they are they, and Margaret's like, well, they're all dead now. So let's go to the club and dance. Oh yeah. And then they go to the club and she picks up this guy. Oh that. Oh yeah. But the guy, it, uh, I, I realized this time that guy is the guy that raped her earlier. She's getting revenge on him. Is that part. right? Cause I, I recognized him and it was like, Oh, okay. It's that guy. Okay. All and right. She, well then that makes sense. I mean, when I was watching it, it really just seemed like she went to the club, found a guy who seemed like a total nudnik, you know, like a real, like, he, he to me, came across as, like, the guy who's the 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 hero of that TV show, um, Dream On, from HBO, yeah. Brian Benbed. Oh, yeah, yeah, we covered Brian, we covered a Brian Benbed movie earlier in the podcast on uh, the movie I Come in Peace. A recurring yeah, theme in the podcast, Brian Benbed. yeah. Yeah, there was there was a Brian Ben Ben moment, at least for a few minutes <laughs> in the early nineties. So the guy that she picks up at the club, and you say this is the same guy. I mean, that's the thing about this movie is like, I think that they don't do an awesome job just like with things like continuity, like not I mean spatial continuity and narrative continuity, and just like establishing things like this is who this character is and this is why you should care. It all takes place over the course of the same day and yet there are so many costume changes. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, you know, she's a model and she's, you know, doing yeah. a photo shoot. But, like, there's, I mean, the scene where she's talking to the professor, she changes her costume three times during the scene. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, I didn't. Re- I didn't realize. I didn't notice that. I I should probably go back and look at that. Well, it's so. you know they're ta- talking about the way that she's dressed. It's motivated by the script, but there are there are ways to create that kind of character continuity so that. And you know what? It doesn't help that in the club you can't see anything. I, I again, I will say the what I was watching 
it looked really good. Uh, things were pretty visible in this version of it. It definitely looked way better with the this transfer. Uh, you know, the there were only a handful of scenes where it still seemed like really noticeably cheap. The the, the lighting, you know, I think mostly yeah. the stuff with the German uh, scientist. You know, it, it was like light just didn't bounce off of him for some reason. It was impossible to see him. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a black hole. It just absorbs it. <laughs> is this a German thing? I don't know. <laughs> well, they're dark. They have a dark sense of humor. You know, so dark Ooh. that light can't escape. Yeah, I mean, I, used to, I lived in Germany as a kid. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's where all my, the light in my life went. I don't know. <laughs> as, a, as somebody with a, a bit of personal lived experience then, uh, what did you think about when Adrian's like, hey, you know, this whole, like, New York City in 1982 thing, you know, that sucks. Let's go someplace where we can get away from the drugs and the weirdos. Let's go to Berlin. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Let's yeah, let's let's go to uh go to the most decadent place imaginable where Iggy Pop and Bowie yeah, hung out. Berlin. I think that yeah. probably what would they would discover is, oh, we all have the alien in our brain that kills the people we have sex with. This not to make you special. No. <laughs> totally, totally. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> one thing I really, really like uh, in the movie, I mean, it, it's kind of, it's it's kind of, it's probably a very, um, I imagine, kind of an alienating, well, in intentionally alienating uh, element of the movie is the soundtrack, the, uh, the score. They keep using that one musical cue. It reminds me of a of like a boss fight music in like a like a Super Nintendo RPG or something. It definitely had a like a not Super Nintendo, but like NES. I think Super Nintendo had I mean, you remember the music from Final Fantasy 7, not Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy 3, which was Final mm -hmm. Fantasy 6. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, it had this beautiful, like, there were tones on top of tones, and it was gorgeous. And yeah. I, I think that that really grating, irritating sound of the synthesizer in this film is more like uh, like something from Nintendo, like from right, the NES. Right. You know, it, it felt like something where they were, this might have been the first time somebody had ever touched a synthesizer. Well, yeah, well, apparently what it was was they got a Fairlight synthesizer, which was a pretty new thing at the time that it had like a, a computer attached to it that you could do a sequencer stuff on i think it had sampling abilities you could do all kinds of things with it it was the new it was a i believe used by most famously by like yes and the art of noise and uh i don't know i'm sure i'm sure the human league and all, this, all the synth pop bands used it too so it was like it was like a very well known piece of equipment but but apparently according to the wiki here uh Zuckerman would tap a rhythm or hum a melody and um hutchinson brenda hutchinson and smith uh clive smith the other person who did the music uh would play around with the ideas on the fairlight percussion sounds were used throughout the movie Zuckerman often rejected re-recording a tape when not perfect loving the rawness of the imperfections he was quoted as saying no i like it let's make it quick and dirty which i really feel like definitely was an operating philosophy throughout the film for sure Apparently, Kate Bush used the Fairlight on running up that hill. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the that one too. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, pretty much everybody who did synth stuff in the 80s used the Fairlight at one point or another. Well, you know, I think Kate Bush had a little bit more success with it. Yeah. (laughs) The score of this film is definitely um, there. Yeah. You know, you can't can't forget it. It is very present. Uh, It's very repetitive. But then also, you know, you go and you watch the credits and they're like, oh, there are all these... There's like a Carl Orff piece that was incorporated into one of the, uh, you know, pieces of the score. And, you know, they they were very high-minded about how they were imagining their use of the the synthesizer in the in the score for the film. But I think really yeah. it it does come off not so much like uh, groundbreaking and brilliant as it does just like grating and annoying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, I've to me, I felt like to me. I mean, just seeing this, someone who saw the film more recently, for the first time, like um, in the most re- in more recent years, like with uh, I it, to me, it felt very deliberately. Like, I mean, like th- there is a kind of abrasiveness to the movie itself, like in, that feels a little slightly intentional. But I mean, that might just be how it comes across because a lot of it's very uh, grating and not. You know, it's it's not it's it's. I mean, I think Adrian is is almost. She's got to be. They they they're thinking Yoko, right? I'm sorry. They're when they're thinking of like this music that Adrian is playing in these uh, clubs. Yeah, like uh, elements of her style as a performance artist that definitely make me think that they're trying to evoke Yoko Ono. Oh sure, yeah, absolutely. Karen yeah. Finley I'll... also had this use. I mean, she liked. At the time, you know, she yeah. was a performer in New York City at these places that were are like yeah. the settings of this film. You know, she would perform yeah. at Danceteria and Palladium and places like this. And yeah. she would get this like really shitty, you know, drum machine that goes and then just perform over it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that def- yeah. in that way you're right. There is yeah. a an intentional kind of that's definitely quality to certain uh, aesthetic elements, because that's like part of what the avant garde was in New York City in the early '80s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was all about noise. I mean, like, I mean, just again going back to No Wave, which again, this is not really No Wave per se. This is way because the, the style's way too fancy for that. But like uh, the uh, definitely that. That whole New York era, like, you know, getting in people's face and everything, you know? Um, yeah, I can see that. You know, like like suicide or DNA or, or stuff like that. Contortions and stuff, yeah. Yeah, J- yeah James still, Chance yeah. and the contortions, right? Like, the, the way that that, that saxophone sound, he, he deliberately made it sound like it was a drill going into your head. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's... So I feel like that's kind of partially the the thing they're going for, but maybe not entirely. But that that's that if, to me that's what it feels like. It all feels of a piece of with that stuff. To what, me, what's weird to me is that it was so commercially successful despite yeah. this aesthetic approach. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think I think maybe that's probably just because it is, despite the more abrasive parts, it is extremely striking. I mean, the colors are amazing i mean oh, there the, are so the, many beautiful moments like the that whole sequence that starts with uh margaret unplugging the uh neon lights you know moving through the space unplugging them one by one and then sitting in total darkness and applying the uh the luminescent makeup 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like amazing. I mean, that's just, and like, it didn't. Crazy. I couldn't tell what the hell was going on when I saw that on VHS. And seeing it now on the Blu-ray, it is gorgeous. Yeah, I'm, I imagine when it was projected on a movie theater, it was probably looked a lot better than it did on VHS. I think it was kind of marketed as a midnight kind of cult movie, kind of like the way Eraserhead and Rocky Horror. And, I, I think that maybe they were trying to to get into that area. And I think that they were also trying to like synthesize between that no wave transgressive thing and this, you know, kind of boring or uh, like slow tempo tradition of experimental um, cinema from the 60s and 70s. Oh sure, you know, yeah. like I there's a I think it's a uh, a poster of uh, uh, Mastriani uh, from mm-hmm. one of Fellini's films that's behind the mom when you remember when she's trying to have sex with the German scientist and he's like, no, I must warn them, I must go across the street. Yes, <laughs> and she's like, well, shit, and she's right in front of this big poster of. Mastriani from uh, I think from uh, La Dolce Vita or from Eight and a Half, and yeah, uh, and you you kind of get a an Italian cinema thing from this like an Ita- Antonioni like Laventura also Blow Up, like yeah definitely a little bit of Blow Up I could definitely see that but like there's these long boring stretches and then there's this all this activity right and and death seems to come out of nowhere and is inexplicable. Antonioni yeah. had a few movies that were sort of this way, you know, like the the Passenger with Jack Nicholson. You know, the way that time is treated in this film reminds me of Antonioni. The way that there's like, it's so weird to think that this movie, I just saw it again today, that this movie is supposed to take place over the course of it of of what twenty four hours. Yeah, I guess it. I guess it technically is about uh, over a day. One of the first things that happens in in the morning is that the rock star says to his mom, I can't have dinner with you tonight. I, I have to, an appointment with a fashion photographer. Yeah. Is he a, is he meant to be a rock star, the Jimmy character? He's some kind of celebrity. I mean, there's a, the re, there's got to be a reason that uh, you know everybody is so into this guy. I think he's supposed to be a kind of a David Bowie type. Yeah, yeah, it definitely looks like it. Like Also, also notably played also by Anne... Carlisle. That's right. I think that the look that he that that character has, I think it, it's a deliberate reference to the like um, serious Moonlight era Bowie. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, because that's that kind of stuff is going. That's what Bowie's doing right then. I think the movie is eighty two, and uh, Bowie's China Girl was like eighty one, right? Yeah, yeah. What's weird is that they're trying to be like transgressive and uh you know like androgynous and confrontational but then their visual connection to bowie is to his like most commercially mainstream era yeah right because <laughs> yeah i guess let's dance yeah. was 80 was recorded in 82 so you know that means that they probably like, if they've seen Bowie dress like this, it's probably because he, he's living in New York at that time, and there's just he's around. Yeah, because Scary yeah. Monsters was eighty, and in Scary Monsters, he's not doing the serious Moonlight thing. He's doing like Scary Monsters is the one that has um, 
Ashes to Ashes, where he does the yeah. the uh, Arlecchino, the Pierrot character, you know, the little clown. And, yeah. you know, it seems like he's making explicit references to uh, Kenneth Anger and to uh, Andy Warhol and, um, you know, Linda Bangless and, you know. And I think that this right. film also shares a lot of those art world kind of connections. I think that they they did make an uh, an effort it seems to me to draw a connection in the scene where um the rockstar is getting the blow job and then he dies. Yeah. Like there are visual references there to the to the uh the Andy Warhol film blow job which is famously just a long close up of a guy's face while he's getting a blow job. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah i mean i mean it, it it really feels like there's references from all over the place for I mean, like from that just from that general milieu of uh you know just say, broadly speaking just artsy new york stuff well yeah I and know. in 1982 i mean what else was culture in america yeah i mean exactly i mean it's that's that's where all the stuff's happening Right. Even the art stuff that's happening elsewhere is largely in reference to what's happening in New York. New York was the not just the center of art and culture in America, but like 80s New York is this like mythological place. Right. That yeah, even exactly. now we're still like obsessed with in in tons of different ways. The film is, it, it has its tentacles in a lot of stuff, right? right? It's not a sort of like a hermetic capsule of a film. This is a, it really wears its like historical significance on its sleeve, right. you know, partly because of the poor production values. Like one of the things that maybe Slava Zuckerman was right about was the fact that it's so rough does make it feel sort of like a documentary. Like, yeah, you, you yeah. don't really, I mean, there were movies that were being made at this time that were, I mean, like Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi are from this period. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, very high levels of production were, right. were you know, all over the place at the time. E.T., you know? Yeah. And, and so, to see so far past the mask, you know? Yeah. To see, like, that was that stairwell that leads up to the roof is yeah. so gross. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Like, you know, I lived in New York City for eight years. I lived in yeah. I lived in Bushwick, and you know, and in Crown Heights and Bed Stuy, and you know, I lived yeah. in Chinatown, and I lived in the East Village and in the West Village, and you know, that New York is gone. It's very gone. It was starting to go in the late 90s. You know, yeah. when Giuliani started to clean everything up and arrest homeless people and, you know, yeah. and turn the whole place into a... Disneyland. Right. <laughs> you know, just to make the whole... The whole city is essentially just a place full of empty apartments that, you know, that people can trade in different ways in order to launder money. I mean, that's really what the whole city is now. It's just a giant machine for laundering money. Right. Yeah. But there was a time, not too long ago, where, you know, there were still junkies passed out in Tompkins Square Park. Yep. And now that's all gone. And you, you really don't... I mean, there are a handful of films, you know, like um, 
desperately seeking Susan. You know, that's a yeah. big yeah. Hollywood movie starring Madonna and Rosanna Arquette, and, you know, that had a, a lot of money behind it, and it looks beautiful, yeah. but you do see the city, right? In a way yeah. that, you know, maybe... <sighs> I think there was a kind of mythologizing about New York that I was, uh, you know, I fell for, right? I mean, this right. is a movie I watched when I was a kid in high school in South Carolina, you know, talking to you every day, and then yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I gotta get away. I gotta get away from Alex. I gotta go to New York. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I tried to get everybody to go to New York, and nobody would go. And you know what? I get up there, and I'm I'm watching it fade away in front of me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. in certain sense, literally, because I got there like two weeks before 9/11. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I always forget we graduated like right before 9/11. Yeah, my um my first day of class was the day that the uh, the towers fell. Wow, what a way to start! <laughs> and that really marked sort of the end of that old New York. Because all of the businesses that were sort of hanging on, you know, there was this massive economic collapse in New York City afterward because everybody moved away from New York City. And, right. you know, people didn't want to travel there because, you know, there was the people were still scared of, oh, my God, what if there's another attack? And so a lot of places just vanished. And it was this rapid acceleration of the gentrification of the city. And, you know, by 2010, like... There were parts of Brooklyn that in the 90s were, you know, nobody from Manhattan would ever go. Right. And by 2010, these places had, you know, karaoke bars and sushi restaurants and vegan grocery stores and and it was all gone. So, you know, maybe it was uh, the right move. But I wonder, though, I still wonder, like, what... This guy didn't make a lot of movies. You know, what would the, like, expensive version of this movie look like? Because it's, you know, it's a weird film, and it doesn't really feel like anybody ever attempted to do something like this again. I mean, except for maybe, like, Neon Demon. Yeah, something like that, yeah. But that's the, the even that's a way different kind of, that's an L L.A. movie, for sure. So that's, like, that's a different kind of... definitely, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, like... I get what you're saying, though, that kind of, like, yeah... It, super hyper stylized kind of um yeah it's hard to imagine a movie that's this weird and this queer you know being made up you know with money yeah i mean i think the, I, I feel like the closest thing that like they probably had at that time was something maybe like tony scott's the hunger or something yeah i was thinking about the hunger as you were saying that yeah tony scott and ridley scott both had this thing where they would take the weird fucked up shit that the you know the crazy drug addicts we're doing yeah and then do a super fancy version of it to sell diet coke which is great because i love those movies and they look gorgeous and they look better now i ever over the last few years i have really gotten into going back and watching shitty movies from the 80s that i had only ever seen on video cassette and watching yeah. them in these beautiful brand new transfers and i'm like holy shit this awful movie is gorgeous yeah, it, it it it's pretty it's pretty crazy. Like I'm wondering, like even if they looked as good on the on the big screen as that that you know, I mean, there was a movie, um, Ridley Scott film, was it Ridley Scott? Yeah, Black Rain. Yeah, with Michael Douglas, right? With Michael yeah. Douglas, and it's New York City, and it's the late '80s, and Jan de Bont is the cinematographer. Oh yeah, 
<laughs> so it is so pretty, right? And then yeah. you know, most of the movie takes place in Japan, and it's all like steam coming out of vents, you know, and it, it looks like a real world version of Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah. And I really miss when people would have things like sets and lights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so sad to see what people do with movies now where every single thing is CG. And for no reason other than that digital workers are not union. Yeah. I'll, I think, yeah, there's that also. It's easy It's easy to, to change things in post that way because you could be just like... Well, yeah, it means that they don't... They get... They could have end, yeah. way more input from people at the top because it's somebody... to pay as many people. Yeah. Like, you can make the whole movie and then some executive can be like, can you make that blue? And then they can. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that opens up this enormous world of bureaucratic interference. Yep. Right? Like, when... With this movie, like, whatever choices they made on the day, that's the choice. Yeah. You know, nobody's going to come in here and, you know, say, uh, can we go in and digitally fix the fact that we didn't have lights? And can we fix the... Um, the sound recording so that it doesn't sound like you're overhearing this conversation from another room, despite the fact that we're looking these people in the eye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, and that, I mean, those are things that, but those are things that lend the, those, those movies from that time, uh, 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 you know, that feeling of that makes the, that feeling of authenticity. that makes people want to, that makes them memorable. There's no substitute in the world for actual light that comes from the sun and it bounces off of a thing and then it goes into right. a camera. Yeah, exactly. There's no computer substitute for that. I mean, maybe people were better at it when it looked worse because the thing is that now, since it looks so good, they want it to look perfect. So everything is... The weird thing is now, budgets are bigger than they've ever been and there is less light and color in movies than there has ever been. We complain yeah. about how this movie is dimly lit, and yet, you know, like, that's the complaint people have about the Batman. Like, if you spend $300 million on a movie and it has, l- and you can see the people's faces less than in Liquid Sky, then where's the money yeah. going? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, well, I think, I think uh, you and I actually did briefly have a little exchange about this on Twitter one time. We were talking about, like, color grading in movies and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and like like that that how so many movies, just like they just love this, because well partially largely because it uh, they like that muted color tone because like it, it can you know connotes seriousness, you know it's like a it's like but it's it always just makes the movies just tend to look more bland looking, it doesn't really help anything that much. Well, yeah. it definitely sucks that every movie does the same thing, which means that yeah. you never have the opportunity to see something that has its own style or attempts to do something weird. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, superhero movies in the 90s, they were dumb and bad, but at least they were fun. Yeah. I mean, they definitely had, I mean, they made choices. Yeah. Super Mario <laughs> Brothers or, you know, like... All the the Batman movies in the '90s have yeah. lighting decisions that I think now, when you look back on them, though that's probably the closest thing to Liquid Sky, is Batman yeah. and Robin. 
<laughs> Kinda. In a way, I could I could see it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cool. you know, um, Schumacher, Joel Schumacher. He also liked this film. Uh, you know, he really liked the wide angle close up, and Fellini and um, Terry Gilliam and and you know, uh, Scorsese and Spielberg, like. The wide-angle close-up is a very powerful, very difficult-to-use tool, right? Right. It can make everything look very clownish. And in this film, I think it's really great. You know, I think that um, it's an inexpensive thing sometimes. People will use the wide-angle close-up just so that they don't have to cut. But it does mean that you have to do things like block the actors and light the entire set. It, you use yeah. less film because you're you're shooting you're cutting less, but it does require you to actually use your skills as a filmmaker. And it, I love it when a filmmaker takes things that they know how to do and uses them to not have to spend money, because yeah. it can be great. Uh, yeah, I mean that's one of my favorite things about movie making is like trying to figure figure things out. I can tell you on movies that I've made that not having resources is not some fun adventure even looking back on it's not it's it's painful literally painful i was on the set of christmas on earth back in in new york city in the summer of 2014 and i got this pain in my lower back that was so distracting that later on that day i was trying to peel a mango and i cut the tip of my finger off Trying to make a low-budget movie where you don't have time and you don't have equipment and everybody's got to be somewhere else and, you know, it's it sucks. And it's a miracle that this movie, Liquid Sky, got made. You know, they had, yeah. they had very little money and, you know, these are not... A lot of these people they were working with were not professionals. You can tell. Then they made something that people are still talking about 40 years later. You know, it's 40 years since that movie was made. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was, I was born in 82, so. Yeah, shit. (laughs) I didn't, didn't think this movie was going to start me thinking about my own mortality, but. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, I wonder if that, you know, like that world and all those people. You know, died of AIDS. Yeah. You know, yeah, the work yeah, survives, yeah. but I think I'd rather have the people. I don't know. Like, at what point is it a good idea? Like, what works of art would you trade to have somebody not die at age 25? I mean, the world would be totally different. Like, an entire generation of the best artists in the world died of AIDS, all within a period of a few years. The world yeah. would be completely different if those people had lived. It just—it's—I don't—I—I I don't have anything to add. I mean, it's just like thinking about what was lost. Well, maybe we have another opportunity now. Maybe that's the upside of living in what is clearly the end of the world. Maybe the work will be better. I mean, there's music last year was pretty good. I wonder how much of like. I really got the sense that people were stuck in their house because of COVID, and as a result you know, produced some of the best music of the last several decades. The thing about what happened with the people who were making Liquid Sky, you know, all these broke, drug-addicted artists living in New York City, 
it was cheap to live there. And so they had a bunch of free time and they were sitting around thinking all day because they were on drugs. And, you know, it was sort of like COVID, right? Everybody working from home. You know, if yep. if you're a, uh, you know, a drug addicted weirdo living in, uh, in Soho in the in 1982, you know, you're probably sitting in your house, in your, in your like shitty loft that doesn't have heat and doesn't have running water. You're probably just sitting there for a good part, part of the week. Just n- nothing to do and nowhere to go. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, maybe that was one of the things that caused so much great art to come out of that period was just people were just like, they didn't have like work and other shit to distract them or even just like fun. There was there was less fun because there was nothing yeah. to do because everybody was yeah. broke. So, you know, maybe this this situation that we're in will have positive long-term effects on the culture, but I think I'd rather have the million people who died. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that I have been worried about as time goes by is that yeah. back in 1982 when they make this movie, you know, New York City was the only choice, right? If you wanted to go be with the weirdos and make art and do drugs and, you know, sit around and not have to, like, live up to people's expectations of you, you went to New York City. And because there was one place, everybody went. And so everybody was there. And so there was this massive concentration of creativity. Right. And now, you know, even if people could afford to move to New York, they're not. Right, they're they're just being creative in like Nashville or Sacramento or Boise, Idaho. Right, and it's cool. You know, it allows people to preserve these communities instead of it being just like every small town in America dying, and you know, everybody moving to Chicago or New York or L.A. But you know, I think we lose something by not having a place for people to go. To be with the other weirdos. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like, everybody's, like, if you're stuck in Savannah, Georgia, or in, you know, Birmingham, and, you know, you can go and hang out with the weirdos there. But, I mean, that's like, what, 40 people? Yeah, it's it's like always a small pool. So there's less interaction, less, um, like, fun coincidences, you know, less less opportunity for there to be this extraordinary thing that happens. But now, because, I mean, because you have the internet, you have everything's, you know, basically decentralized. You can just do things wherever you want to do. Yeah, it creates less of that kind of concentrated uh, little area of... Well, I think it pushes more um, onus onto the individual to be the source of creativity rather than, like, collaboration and improvisation and interaction with other people right and that has had an effect on the kind of work that we get right yes very much i mean it's like it's and it's just like everything else in society becoming more atomized and and individualized and i i i will say i do enjoy the fact that i can do something like this podcast you know with uh with you know i can just literally just turn on my computer and connect with somebody and do a thing that is pretty cool but yeah you do lose something with not being able to have that uh, collaborate that sense of community and collaboration with people i think that the technology that defines how we live our lives 
it shapes the work that we make. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, like the podcast, for example, right? Like everybody's got the technology on their laptop to just have a Zoom call with somebody, record the sound, and you've made a podcast, right? And right. in in that way, you know, the the technology that was just like put in our lives created this uh, flourishing of this particular medium. But, you know, people have cameras on their phones and it didn't create this massive wave of extraordinary cell phone camera filmmakers. I mean, it, it created things like TikTok and Vine, which, you know, is a very particular kind of beautiful folk art kind of a thing, which I love. Sure. But the people who are the filmmakers, it's, it's as though the having access to the cheap um, gear didn't turn everybody into a filmmaker. What it did was it turned every small business into a business that needed to have its own like video content on its social media page. I mean, I, I think, I think partially that, I mean, I will say partially with that it's, it's because filmmaking is just, even with, even with cheap equipment is like, like we've talked about, it's just really freaking hard, an incredibly hard art form to do. Because it's just so much wrangling of resources. And but the people... thing is that if you look at the low-budget films that are being made now, they look so much better and sound so much better than Liquid Sky. And sure. the reason is that the the technology is a lot better. And yeah. it's so much cheaper. I think yeah. that the limiting factor is that atomization that you were describing. Yeah. And in and, and the best of times, it's hard to network with people and, and get people to, to together to do a movie. And this time in the age where everybody's just like wrapped up in their own little, you know, whatever bubble, just it's really hard to to do a collaborative thing, and uh, you know, so like it tends to get more even more uh, centralized in the hands of people with money, uh, which I don't know, it sucks. <laughs> it's okay to talk about this stuff because we're talking about alienation, right? Yeah. The and that's that's at the heart of this. What we're talking about is alienation. We're alienated from our lives. We're alienated from the stories and media that we consume. We're alienated from, you know, our friends and our family. I mean, and I yeah, think that Liquid Sky is about that kind of alienation. Absolutely. The, there's, there's a dark, like, gloomy, uh, shitty attitude in the film. And the alien that comes from outer space, it doesn't talk to anyone. It doesn't, you know, bring, you know, new technology to share. It doesn't even take anybody on some kind of fun adventure right all the alien does is you know watch this poor woman get raped kill people and then leave you know yeah, it's yeah. a vision of what aliens are that is as grim as it gets yeah <laughs> and the fantasy of there's an alien out there that's technologically superior that's going to come here and colonize us and we'll be slaves and all that bullshit. That's a fantasy of what if there was, what if somebody gave a shit? Yeah. What if there were some adventure to go on? What if there were some war to win? What if there was some conflict that would give my life meaning? Right? At least right. that fantasy. You know, yeah. it, it can give you this idea that alien life would be better than being alone in the in the universe even if they were evil right but this alien life is just you know it's as empty and 
joyless as these people that you described earlier as being anhedonic. You know, this is an yeah. alien, like, like the German scientist says, they don't even have bodies. It's, it's just there to just feed and then it's it's just a little it, i mean it's kind of like a virus and in, in a sense it's just like this little thing that comes and it's indifferent to what it's doing it's just doing this thing and going <laughs> right it doesn't even seem to have intelligence you know it, it it just consumes i mean that definitely reflects back on the people in the movie even among the people who are like in in show business or in the modeling world there's not even seem to be that much ambition they're just kind of like Okay, whatever. Like you said, alienation. Like even the things that people feel like they're supposed to want to do or something, it, they just don't... Like, there's a recurring theme of this... The anxiety of these men who are on heroin as to whether they'll be able to get an erection in order to do a sex crime. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's about as dark as it gets. Something I liked about the film is that, you know, it's sort of the anti-girls... In that, from the very beginning, it has a kind of class consciousness to it. And Adrian, who is like essentially a Marxist, is going yeah. around person to person, like, "Where are you from?" Now, like, "I'm from Montana." Where are you from? I'm from, uh, you know, I'm from Baltimore, Detroit. Yeah. And and she's like, "See, we got the whole country here, right? Yeah. Like nobody there was from New York. They all essentially were like middle class kids who moved to New York City in order to have fun." Margaret herself is, you know, described, you know, described as Connecticut wasp. Yeah, and this is 1982, and the I keep mentioning it because I want to, you know, drive that home. Uh, the Jimmy is that the, the guy's name? Yeah, yeah. Jimmy's mom, you know, she's reluctant to give him money, but she pays for lunch at the fancy restaurant with her Amex. Yeah. And so she's got a lot of money, right? Because in 1982, you didn't have an Amex if you didn't have a lot of money. Right. They didn't just give those out like they do now, where everybody has, like, $50,000 in credit card debt. You know, yeah. it was hard to get credit back then. So yeah. I think the film in general is, like, the, the real villains are just, like, every human being. Yeah. <laughs> These are bad people, and they deserve what they get. That's sort of the message we get, right? They're all rich assholes who don't have any real problems. Who are just you know living this hedonistic lifestyle and are ignorant to the hurt that they cause to people you know like something that makes it different from other transgressive stuff like richard kern or like mary gates Gill, like we were talking about you know the way that they are being transgressive in the um fashion photography scene is by you know like everybody all of a sudden being cruel yeah yeah which doesn't feel like the thing that defines uh, transgressive literature like Dennis Cooper or, you know, even Brady Snellis is the nihilism. Right. And the idea that the worst thing that could happen is that you hurt someone's feelings is just so weirdly, like, romantic. You know, it's the opposite of transgressive. I mean, it's about ideals. And in that way, it does sort of feel like, like I was saying before, like, the synthesis where this these people are sort of like attempting to do transgressive cinema, but from the perspective of this like, you know, yeah, 19th I mean, century romantic impulse. I believe one of the influences, or at least I, I can't see, it's not like on here on the wiki, but there's like some other thing I read 
one of the influences was um, what was it called? Uh, it was that. It was like, it was this old constructivist science fiction movie about a revolution on Mars or something. I mean, obviously this movie's not about a revolution or anything, but even if it came out of you know the Soviet Union to get away from it, like there's like a certain kind of strain of that kind of thing that would probably inform the um, approach to it. No, I can, I can see an element of Soviet science fiction, you know, like um, the Strugatsky brothers or uh, Stanislaw Lem, you know, where the alien force is sort of incomprehensible and it's really about the emotional journey uh, of the, you know, you know, the existential crisis of the characters and that the science fiction elements are just there as a way into the, you know, like, uh, analysis of alienation, you know, yeah. I can see that for sure. Uh, it, you know, it would explain, I think, why the film doesn't really have that, um, traditional, like, narrative structure that you see in a lot of Hollywood films, right? right. If it did, I think you'd probably, uh, you'd probably get to the part where, the first person dies from, you know, the, from having sex, I would say probably like a half hour earlier. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be more like a, of a hook in the movie itself. Like I think that if it was like more of a Hollywood type thing, cause it'd be more like, that's what's driving the plot versus, you know what I mean? It'd be like, there's like a death every few minutes though. I mean, there are, there have been a lot of films that though that have like really explored the sex, death alien thing well there, yeah there was a lot of it in the 80s you know there's like life force and stuff oh yeah yeah and then of course species under the skin all kinds of movies like that that do some kind of alien thing but that's not really what this is the deaths in it are very kind of like well i mean because for i mean first it starts with like just people getting their heads impaled by this little crystal thing and then and then she actually does kind of like i guess have some kind of rapport with the aliens where she says oh can you get rid of the body for me and just makes them disappear <laughs> which, which is actually a pretty cool little effect it's like some stop motion effect of like them turning into like little foil or something i thought that was a cool effect and you know her weird relationship with the alien you know it comes across as a little like a little mac and me you know a little uh yeah, a little little ET almost. I mean, I mean, especially at the end, like she's like, "Please don't go," you know. Right, um, and she calls yeah. him Indian. Did you catch that? Yeah, yeah. She. I mean, I'm. I'm not really sure what that comes from. I have a theory. Sure. Go ahead. In 1980, uh, a book was published, a famous children's book called "The Indian in the Cupboard." Yeah. Okay. And. I think that her relationship, I think what she does is she's sort of like drawing a connection or an analog between the relationship she has to the alien as the sort of the relationship that the child has to the Indian in the cupboard. It's, it's a, you know, it'd be weird though for a, like these are people in their 20s presumably and like what are the chances that they are like up on the latest children's books? Yeah, I don't, I don't really remember when she starts even calling it Indian, she just does after a while. It is it is an interesting uh, like a uh, thing like because like otherwise the alien is pretty much just you know completely impersonal, just this like this eye shaped energy thing. Um, I really really dig the uh, proto kind of predator kind of like infrared you know whatever kind of like 
vision because it's like it's like it, it's like the, the, it continues the whole thing with colors and shapes and everything being you know which is really cool i mean that that that's the stuff that's really striking in that in the movie i mean, like the the effect with the uh whenever like the alien is getting somebody while they're having an orgasm you know like that it portrays the orgasm as like this little sphere you know that kind of just like contracts into like this little yeah it's it's a really beautifully rendered effect um and from what i understand yuri naiman the cinematographer did those special effects oh wow yeah that's really cool (laughs) i would bet it was a kind of um early video effect yeah i mean that's what i figured you know it was like i do think you see stuff like that in some 80s music videos yeah it it just looks cool <laughs> you know especially i mean watching it especially with this transfer you know some movies are some movies you think of as color movies or movies with that with lots of colors in them or whatever but like this movie like literally shapes and color like shapes and colors are feeling like they're dominating it even with the stuff that's like not so well lit you know yeah i think you're right i think it's the it's primarily from the neon and the makeup i think because yeah. the, the makeup and the clothing is so colorful, and but yeah. you really see on the on the the high quality transfer, man, those costumes they're gorgeous, but they are literally made of garbage. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's like scraps they found in the trash that they that they pinned together. They didn't even sew anything. Yeah, everybody's wearing an outfit where if they sat down too hard, it would explode. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. You do get a sense that they understand, like, what fashion photography at the time was and how it worked. You know, they the photographs from the fashion shoot, mm-hmm. like, they do this effect where they use a flash at night and use, um, like, a long exposure. And as a result, the subject is sharp. But the background is like blurry and moves around. Yeah, it's all squiggly and yeah, it looks. And yeah, that's it's a really pretty cool. sophisticated photography effect. That's not like somebody wrote. There's a fashion shoot in the script. That's like somebody who knows what's going on. And there yeah. were little things like that throughout the film where you really got a sense that these are people who knew how to do a better job and couldn't because they didn't have the resources. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's like constantly scraping up against the the limits of their their budget and stuff like that. But it, def- I mean, but it it leaves an effect. It lingers in your memory. It, you don't forget it. You know, I mean, <laughs> absolutely. I think that the the fact that you can see it in a totally new way now is really exciting. Yeah, I I mean, I highly recommend that Blu-ray to anybody who wants to check it out because like it's. <laughs> It's a really, really awesome transfer. Um, any parting words about Liquid Sky? I would say definitely the first time you watch it, you should be high. But then it, about- it is worth going back and, and watching it sober as well. There, are, There is a certain way in which the film is like designed to be watched high. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's like, you know... We want to see a movie that was in CinemaScope. We want to see it in widescreen, right? And if it's got quadraphonic sound, we want those channels separated, right? And if they intended you to be, um, you know, puffing on a doobie, then you should, you should, 
because that's the experience and you don't want to rob yourself of that there, like there are certain movies that are designed to be like um like that like where you, where you can watch them and enjoy them perfectly fine sober or whatever but like definitely if you've uh ingested something uh, <laughs> like it definitely enhances the experience like i remember the most recent example i could think of was the movie mandy you know with nicholas oh, cage yeah absolutely for I me mean, uh, the single film that is like the exemplar of this genre is ganja and hess ganja and hess the um bill gunn well, it's got ganja in the title i mean well yeah but it isn't actually about <laughs> marijuana it's about a um a guy who's a vampire and it's a um it's a it was like i guess marketed as a black exploitation film in the 70s but it's actually this it very much transcends the genre yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I would say Gondrin has not only my favorite horror film, I would say probably the best movie to watch whilst, while, uh, you know, smoking them doobies. Yep. <laughs> or at least a good, I don't know, gummy or something. Sure. You know, the... Ingesting yeah. is how grown-ups do it, of course. Definitely, liquid, yeah, Liquid Sky definitely would benefit for a little bit of uh, that. I mean, because, I mean... It's about heroin mostly, but I don't know if that <laughs> would well, recommend there's that. There's also an enormous amount of cocaine. I mean, there's an entire dartboard, yeah. a dartboard covered in cocaine. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a coke and heroin movie, and uh, but yeah, I, I, the acting be, teacher does roll a doobie at the, right that, before that he has sex with her. I mean, it, it is a trippy, weird movie, so like it 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 benefits from that, um, but. Uh, yeah so definitely um thank you andre for coming i really uh, i had a good time talking about this um is uh there anything you would like to uh promote or yeah check out my youtube channel go uh you know search my name on uh on youtube and you'll find it cool all right well uh well thanks for coming on um come back anytime um I, thank you so much for having me this has been great if you have any constructive comments, movie suggestions, or stories of your own otherworldly sightings or encounters, drop us a line at saucercinemapod at gmail.com.